Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. But you knew that. It's a great day to be alive. You knew that also. And if you weren't aware of it, if you hadn't been thinking about it, thank you for giving me the opportunity to remind you about that today, which is just a fancy way of me saying thank you for being here today. If you're new to the show, this is Crazy Money. It's where I have guests on to have conversations about money and happiness. And we explore that topic through the lens of my guest's money journey or expertise. And today it's a combination of both. My guest is a guy named Ken Rusk. In previous takes of this introduction, I kept introducing him as Dean Rusk, who, as you certainly know, was the Secretary of State under John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Baines Johnson. But this is not him, because that guy's probably dead. This is Ken Rusk, who is an entrepreneur from Toledo, Ohio, who's just written a new book called Blue Collar Cash, Love Your Work, Secure Your Future, and Find Happiness for Life, in which he advocates for making a living with one's hands and offers an analysis of society's obsession with higher education as being inappropriately labeled as essential to every 18-year-old in the country. We'll dive into that in just a second. If you're new or haven't taken a chance to offer your endorsement of Crazy Money, I sure would appreciate it if you take a second to rate this show. That's how Apple and other podcast applications, that's apps, for you cool kids. That's how they know that you appreciate what we're doing on Crazy Money and they help share it with other listeners who might be looking for a new podcast to love. You can go to ratemypodcast.com slash crazy money, ratemypodcast.com slash crazy money, or you can go to the show notes, scroll down and see the link where you can do that on your own. What's happening here in Atlanta, Georgia? Well, school started two weeks ago and I just want to say a big Thank you to all the teachers and faculty and staff at my kids' school. You know who you are. This team has put a great deal of effort into scheduling, social distancing, enforcing sanitary procedures like mask wearing that are essential to help keep our kids safe while trying to give them the opportunity to be kids. There is no perfect solution to what's going on in our world right now. And I just want to say, I appreciate it as a parent, your thoughtfulness in coming up with this solution. And we don't know what's going to happen from here, but your thoughtfulness is noticed and appreciated by this parent of a fourth and fifth grader. So thanks. What else is going on? Oh, we had the very good fortune of having my in-laws here for a few days last week to celebrate some birthdays. Hadn't seen them for six months. So happy to see their faces. And I know my kids were just delighted to see grandma and grandpa here. I mentioned this because on this week's episode, I invited my father-in-law, Steve Seidels, to co-host. Why? Well, for two reasons. One, he was in town and we needed something to do. And two, he and I have this relationship that I think a lot of fathers-in-law and sons-in-law have that just because some guy falls in love with your daughter doesn't mean you have anything in common with him. And that, you know, if it goes well, you got to figure out how to get along and know each other for decades, hopefully. And so Steve and I have this interesting relationship because he's a man's man and he does things with his hands. He knows how to fix stuff. He knows how to tie knots. You know how to tie a knot? I don't know how to, I know how to tie a bow tie. I can tie like that and I can tie the shoestring knot and the half shoelace knot I tie twice if I'm never going to have to untie it. Those are the knots I know how to tie. He knows how to tie a whole bunch of knots. And what I'm saying is that this is relevant to this week's episode because there's guys who know how to do stuff and there's guys who have fancy diplomas and they're not necessarily the same guys. 
I want to share with you before we start this 30 second clip I have of me telling jokes about this very topic and the frustration I had when I tried to fix my own leaky faucet, a leaky faucet in my house. Here's why I had to fix it. But I had to fix that leaky faucet, y'all. I had to because my father-in-law was coming to town, and if he saw that faucet dripping, he would have yet further evidence that his daughter married an overeducated, undercompetent, tender-palmed, liberal arts half-man, and that's me. That's who I am. Thank you very much. In the back. See, I can't have him think of that because he's a man's man, y'all, right? He rides horses, he packs shotgun shells, he eats beef jerky on the toilet. I am not kidding you. So you can see, I try to fix stuff if only to prove that I'm not a complete imbecile. And when I do, I end up just proving that I am, in fact, a complete imbecile. And neither my father-in-law nor I is unaware of this giant gap in skills. So I thought it'd be fun to have him on and have him talk to Ken Rusk about what it's like and the importance of being able to make a living in your hands at a time when blue-collar jobs are paying as much as they've ever paid. And yes, I say this understanding that we have a disappearing middle class in America, but for tradespeople, the time has never been better. We get into that. So let me go back and tell you a little bit more about Ken Rusk. He's the author of a new book called Blue Collar Cash, Love Your Work, Secure Your Future, and Find Happiness for Your Lives, in which he advocates an alternative career path to anyone who doesn't believe that college plus white collar job is the root or route for them. Ken doesn't believe the college is wrong for everybody, but he argues persuasively that society overemphasizes the necessity of getting that degree, regardless of the massive tuition and debt millions take on in pursuit thereof. Happiness, he argues, is in finding work that suits your skills and personality, and that is the path to the comfort, peace, and freedom Ken wishes to his employees, his friends, and all the readers of his book. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is my conversation with Ken Rusk, as co-hosted by one Stephen Seidels of Scottsdale, Arizona. Ken Rusk, welcome to Crazy Money. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. You have the distinct honor of being the first guest that I am interviewing with a co-host, and that co-host is my father-in-law, Steve Seidels. Steve, welcome to the co-hosting chair of Crazy Money for today. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Are you nervous? Well, I have been a little bit when you first asked me to do this, but I'm starting to settle down a little bit. All right, good. You just jump in where you're ready. Ken, I've just finished your book, Blue Collar Cash, Love Your Work, Secure Your Future, and Find Happiness for Life. Now, in it, you wrote that you wrote this book for anyone who feels that a conventional path just isn't for them. How do you define the conventional path, and when did you know that it wasn't for you? Well, first off, I think the words conventional path have changed over the years. You know, when I grew up, I remember being in high school and the teacher asking, raise your hand if you're going to college. And only about a half of us actually raised our hands. And I thought that seemed pretty balanced. You know, some people were going off to college. Some people were going off to learn a trade or a skill to work in a business or to work at a factory or whatever that might have been. And then at some point back in the 70s and 80s, They kind of took shop class out of our high schools and they replaced it with rooms full of computers. You know, obviously we all needed to learn computers. I get that. But I don't think it was an either or binary choice between you either learn a skill or you learn a computer. I think we could have done both. And what that did is it kind of eliminated a whole generation of millions of kids who might have learned, you know, how to discover hammering a nail or wiring an outlet or welding a piece of metal or even doing some home economic type things. So, 
that's part of the problem. And I just kind of knew that wasn't for me right off the bat because I liked working with my hands. So who is the person that should pick up this book? Whose life will be changed by reading your thoughts? That's a great question. In this day and age, if you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or even a mentor of somebody, I think you should read this book and then maybe hand it off to someone who you think could use some guidance, a younger person, have them read it, and then you can have a good conversation together. Lately, we found a lot of people who manage employees are liking this book because you can really build a team full of what Tom Galassano likes to call entrepreneurial employees. And you can build a lot of loyalty that way. But I think the last person that would probably read it is maybe someone in their mid-years that they're kind of stuck at a job that they don't really like and they're kind of stuck in their goals and they want to get free of that and move on with what they want their life to look like and then go after it and start to get it. So there's actually different groups of people that could benefit from this book. Did you feel insecure about going to college or what was it about college that either didn't appeal to you or didn't work for you as a student? For me, I just knew that that wasn't somewhere that I belonged and I liked making money. I liked being in control of my own output. I think when you work with your hands, the beauty of that is you get to work as hard as you want. You get to control the things that you create, that you make, that you build. Therefore, your output determines your income in most cases, at least it did for me. So the harder I worked, the more time that I put in, the more results I was able to get, the more financially rewarding that became to me. So for me, I thought, I'm just going to get a four-year head start on all my buddies that are going to college and try to make <laughs> my life work right off the bat and avoid paying you know, the hundreds of thousands of debt that they were collecting you know, in trying to pay for college that in a time when they maybe didn't have the funding to do so. So You're right that you were picked on as a child. How did this affect your worldview? You know, it's so great because you're the first one that's asked me that question. So I really appreciate you asking me that. <laughs> Let's lean in. Let's do this. One of the things that I thought was really important was to be able to change the narrative. I mean, yeah, I looked funny as a kid and I had scars and I wasn't a big kid and I got picked on because I was an easy target. I remember one day just throwing some humor in a self-deprecating way back at the guy that was coming after me that day. And I was able to kind of control his emotions from that point forward because not only did it set him back on his heels, but also the people around him kind of looked down on him like, you know, why did you say that? That was a really dumb thing to say. And I just felt like I had this almost awakening of wow, I can control how I am perceived. I can control how hard I want to work and the things that I want to do. So from that moment on, I just felt like I had a a positive change. And, And again, once again, thanks for asking that. That's really cool. And how does that affect the way you conduct yourself in business to this day? For me, I always talk about this. You know, I started with about three employees and now I have over 200. And I I say this all the time. I can't get what I want, nor can my company get what it wants until all of you get what you want first. Mm. And I really mean that because if I can create a bunch of team members to come into my organization and feel like they can build a life for themselves and they're in control of that life and they're in control of the development of their comfort, peace and freedom picture, whatever that is then I think we all win. And for me, it just came back to, I wanted to see who I really wanted to be. I wanted to be this other person. I wanted to be this person who was perceived as someone who could get things done, who could control their own destiny, who could give back in service of others. And it was just kind of a whole well-rounding thing for me. So you say you started your company in 1986. What kind of work did you do? 
We do foundation work. I mean, one of the things that we do, and we have several things that we're involved in, but one of the things that we do is we literally dig ditches around houses to drain water away. It's something I started doing when I was 15. It was a company that was located right next to my high school. So if I wanted pizza money and gas money and <laughs> you know money to take out my girlfriend, I needed to get something done. So I had a, a lot of hours on the business end of a digging shovel, I can tell you that. So it started there and I stayed within the company and just looked for promotions where I could find them and then ran crews and then ran the crews that ran the crews. And pretty soon I went out and opened my own version of that company. And uh, it's where I've been ever since. So Steve, what kind of work were you doing at 16 or what kind of manual labor have you done in your life to earn a living? At 16, I was in a military academy and summer vacations. I was doing all kinds of odd jobs and landscaping and whatever each summer, plus going to summer school to try and keep my grades up. Probably a lot of mowing grass and, and doing all kinds of things like that at 16. What did your folks have to say about this at the time, Ken? Well, my father, he grew up working in grocery stores and mm. ended up starting his own food brokerage company, which he did really well at. He started that when he was 16 as well. So when I came to him and said, hey, dad, I can do one of two things. I can go sit in school, which doesn't feel comfortable for me because I constantly ask myself, what am I going to use this for? You know, some people answer that question properly. I couldn't answer it at the time. Or I can work within this organization, learn everything that I can about running my own company. And they even allowed me to go to other cities to open up new divisions of this same company. So I was kind of like learning on somebody else's dime. And I thought, what a better way to learn how to run a company or open one than to just, you know, practice at it with somebody else's company. So it just felt really natural for me to progress into that path. And uh, so far, so good. So You speak very clearly about the degree of manual labor that you were doing. You were literally a ditch digger. And it made me think of the famous Judge Schmales quote from Caddyshack, where he says, in a non-charitable way whatsoever, well, the yeah. world needs ditch diggers too. Yeah. But you've made a pretty good living digging ditches. Why do you think there's such a stigma about doing work with one's hands? That's real simple. I think so many people, they just have this default mechanism. Okay, I got to go to high school. I got to get good grades and I got to go to college. Well, nobody ever questions that default thinking. Okay. You know, the teachers push it and the parents push it. And it's obviously the colleges push it. It's because it's all they know. And everyone feels like, well, that's the only way to get yourself to a better life. Man, nothing could be further from the truth because especially now that kids are growing up with things like cell phones and tablets in their hand, and they're not out in the backyard building tree forts. They're not <laughs> discovering these types of jobs in shop class anymore. So the problem with that is it creates a whole supply and demand imbalance. And we all know where supply is low and demand is high, that's where the money goes. So for me, it was a no-brainer. And I think it's a very lucrative path for anybody, especially these days, to take that route. So, Well, the pay is good. Despite what we hear about the disappearing middle class, what are the other advantages of a blue-collar lifestyle? You know, I think you can do a lot of things. You can control your output. You can control the quality of your work. You get to see from beginning to end what happens there. I think you can control your time. 
okay? Because the harder you work, the more time you have to do the things you want to do. And I really think, to me, it's always been about this step back moment. And that's the moment where, you know, you're done laying up that day's worth of beautiful stone on a beautiful stone kitchen. And you can back away from that at the end of the day and maybe lean on your shovel a second and sip your pop and look at that kitchen and go, wow, I did that. That is a beautiful thing I just created. And that will stand the test of time. I don't think some of those jobs where you're sitting in a cubicle all day give you the same satisfaction because you might be just a very small cog in a very large wheel and you don't get to see the end game there. So that feeling of satisfaction that you talk about, that's how I feel when I finish a thousand word essay and I submit it to somebody to publish somewhere. But if right. I try to fix my own leaky faucet, I make a complete mess out of my bathroom. <laughs> I waste, my father-in-law is laughing silently. Why is he shaking his head He's, like he uh, agrees, right? <laughs> well, I sent you a link to some comedy we're going to run at the end of this, which is all about how insecure I am about having a very handy father-in-law and having no skills around the house or the yard myself. So right. we're going to get into that. But I understand that feeling of satisfaction, I just don't find it in the day-to-day tasks around the house, or I never develop the skills how to build things. Am I a lost cause at 51 years old? Well, I don't think you ever are a lost cause. And that's why when you asked me about who should read the book, we've determined that it's anywhere from 17 to 50 years old, you can get something out of this book. And one of the things is, if you start with today, this is one of the things I do with our employees. I have them actually take a large piece of white cardboard paper, like poster board, and I actually have them grab a box of crayons and literally draw what they want their life to look like in one, three, five, ten 10 years. I mean, are you a house person or are you a farmhouse person? Are you a condo person, an apartment person? Are you in the city? Are you in the suburbs? Are you in, in the farmland? And I actually have them get real detailed. Are you a pickup truck guy or a car guy or maybe an electric vehicle person, are you a dog or a cat person? Get really detailed into what you want your life to look like. And anybody can do this because you only have today to start to see what the rest of your life is going to look like. And that's why I think it's so important for anyone, especially if you're in one of those jobs where you're stuck in a cubicle. I even had somebody from a local newspaper that was asking me that same question, but the more I quizzed them on it, they were asking them for themselves. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. <laughs> Journalism so is a bad place I, I, I to be right now. it's never too late to think about what your life looks like. So. Right. Steve, you want to ask this question? Well, the question is, are blue collar jobs more susceptible to uh, economic cycles than white collar jobs? Well, I can tell you that this pandemic has proven a lot of things. It's proven how essential blue collar workers are. You know, I've never seen the front yards of all the houses in my neighborhood look as good. (laughs) I've never seen things be so clean. I've never seen things get fixed so much, repaired, replaced, improved upon. If there's a silver lining from a pandemic, it's the fact that we've kind of rediscovered family life at home. And I'm all for the fact of maybe parking the minivans and not going three hours every weekend for the soccer game and all that insanity. Not that there's anything wrong with soccer. It's just the lifestyle. So I like the fact that people are riding bikes and they're walking their dogs and they're taking kayak rides and they're doing leisurely things and they're improving their houses. And just because we have a pandemic doesn't mean things stop breaking or stop needing fixed or repaired. And I really hand it to those essential workers, especially those frontline essential workers who are doing the things out in the public when we didn't know anything about this disease. And, you know, I give them a lot of credit for sticking to it and doing what they need to do. What kind of blue collar jobs do you think will be in most demand over the next decade? 
That's a great question. You know, D.R. Horton just sent an all-time sales record for building new houses in the middle of a pandemic. So what does that tell you? I also think that, you know, anything in the fabrication industry, like welding, that type of thing, anything in new sources of energy, alternative sources of energy, and even traditional sources of energy is really big right now. Anything in leisure. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but in our neighborhood, if you want an in-ground pool, you're waiting two years for that right now. (laughs) So there's a lot of that going on in anything that has to do with the human activity. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Steve, you and Sue, my mother-in-law, your wife of decades, just renovated your kitchen. What skill was the hardest to procure or for which service did you have to wait the longest to finish that renovation project? Well, it started in September, October of last year. I took the job uh, as the general contractor (laughs) because I knew all the people that I'd done business with for the last 25 years. I lined up my electrician and plumber and sheetrock and all the people I'd done business with. Probably it was the electrician. It all planned out pretty much on target, but I had to pay dearly. Because uh, these guys were so busy, and I had to give a lot of bonus checks and bribe them as much as I could, and they had to put off a lot of their customers to make me happy. That's how much in demand all these people are. And they are busy around the clock, just about 20 out of 24 hours a day. Is that what you're seeing, Ken, in your business these days? I'll give you a quick stat on electricians. You know, the average age of electrician right now in the United States is between 52 and 55 years of age. And for every five that retire, only one is coming online to replace them. Mm. So I say this all the time. If you're a good finished carpenter, if you're a good welder, if you're a good electrician or a good plumber and you stick to it, if this goes the way it's currently going, people are going to make more money than family doctors in a real hurry. Your father-in-law has just experienced that with the way he paid for his kitchen. So So let's put a number on that. How much money can a good electrician make in the market today? And where do you think that goes over the next five years? Well, we're seeing anywhere from $25 an hour to $55 an hour. Okay. We're seeing that in finished carpentry, we're seeing $28 to $52 an hour plus benefits. Mm. In welders, it's $48 an hour. So if you start multiplying those numbers out, that's a six-figure income just by yourself. God forbid you decide to hire two or three guys to help you and now you have your own small company. Now you're making your 52 and you're also charging 28 for each one of those guys. And so now you're talking about where you can create some real wealth with a very small company. And the way technology is today, guys, you can run a company on your phone. I mean, (laughs) the the software you need, the books, the bookkeeping, all that stuff can happen on your phone. So the barriers to entry of starting your own company have never been easier than they are right now. And like your father-in-law said, with the demand that's out there, it's a pretty good time to try and run your own show. Yeah, just a phone and a pickup truck. That's all you need. Yeah. So can a lot of independent contractors in any field, whether it's white collar or blue collar, have trouble asking for what their time is worth up front? What kind of advice do you give those people on how to ask for more than they think they're worth? I think first they have to gauge the demand within their community to see where it's at. I mean, you know, I give you an idea. I talked about the stone kitchen earlier because I had one built a year ago on Mm -hmm. my patio. I had to wait eight months for this guy. So when he came up and said, hey, I just want you to know something. There's not a lot of people doing this. 
A lot of people have retired and gone away. There's only a few of us left, which he was right. And I need to charge this much money for it. He wasn't apologetic. He was saying, this is just the reality of it because mm-hmm. I've got work for two years. So I said, okay. I mean, I put the value against what he was charging and I paid the money. But you know, the funny thing about that is here's a guy who's making over $200,000 a year. He has a cool job because he rolls up in your front yard. He's got a brand new pickup truck. His crew follows him in his dump truck. They all get out. They have their coffee. They have their jeans, their t-shirts, and their boots on. They're cranking up Led Zeppelin, and they're going to work creating these wonderful pieces of art. And here's the saddest part. Do you know that guy has no one to leave his company to, and he wants to retire in five years? Mm. So just think of the opportunity there for someone who says, you know what? kind of like working with my hands. College thing isn't for me. I'm going to spend four years maybe shadowing that guy and then take that company over. There's a beautiful opportunity out there for someone who's maybe got a little ambition, you know? Yeah. Along those lines, you say on page 39, and I wrote down the page number because that's how thorough I am. You say, if you put in hard work, it will pay off. Now, Ken, come on. That is very antiquated notion. You must be an old fashioned guy. Look at it this way. When is the last time you had someone walk up to your front door that you wanted to hire, look you right in the eye, give you a nice smile and give you a nice firm handshake? And oh, by the way, they were early. Okay. They were three minutes early to the meeting. You know, again, God forbid they show up on time and they do what they say they're going to do and they do it in a quality way and you're proud of it and they're proud of it. They now just put themselves in very rarefied air because there's not many people who do that anymore. So I do believe that hard work and honest work and on-time work and standing behind your work is something that's almost so rare anymore that it's looked upon as if, oh my gosh, who is this Superman? Well, that guy used to be normal, but now he's, he's rare. So that's why I think hard work will still rule the day no matter what. When you interview a potential employee, what do you look for? I look for somebody. Now, this is a little controversial, okay? In this day and age, with all the information kids have in the palm of their hand, they can job shop you six ways from Sunday. I mean, between the highway and my office, there's 25 help wanted signs. So it, it is a higher ease market right now. When I look at something like that, I like a guy who looks at me and says, okay, I've got some goals. I've got some things that I want to do with my life. What's in it for me to work for you? I like that. It sounds cocky to some people and it sounds put offish to some people. But if I have a guy that really wants to create a life for himself within my organization and I can convince him he can do that, it's kind of like, thanks for the training, Ken. Now get out of my way and let me do it. I take that guy every day. And what is that guy getting from you besides a paycheck? Well, we do a lot of things to create a really cool culture. We go beyond just, you know, the music and the birthdays and the anniversaries and the bonus checks. And we go beyond that. One of the things I like to make sure is that not only do I know what's in his or her head as far as their one, three, five year plan, but we actually have them write it down on this huge glass board that we have in the hallway. And It's there for all to see because I believe that once you commit to a goal, then you set it up very specifically so that it has a beginning date, an end date, and an actual plan to make it happen. Then you share that with all of your coworkers. There's this huge support system that makes that happen every single time. 
And if someone again starts to win within your company and they start to gain the things they want for themselves, man, it's like get out of their way. They are a goal oriented machine from that point on. And are those individual plans something you talk about a lot? Is that something that everyone in the company is aware of? Oh, that's Bob. He wants the fishing cabin up in Northern Michigan or something like that. That's his lifetime goal or something like that. Well, yeah, as long as we can break it down into finite detail. I had a gal come up to me and say, I really want to visit my sister in Europe. And I said, well, then let's do that. And she goes, oh my God, I could never afford to do that. And I said, okay, well, let's figure that out. So let's talk about how much that's going to cost you. And she said, it's going to cost me about $3,000. I said, okay. So your only question then is not if you're going to go, it's when you're going to go. If you want to save, you know, 20 bucks a week, you'll be there in three years. You want to save 40 bucks a week, you'll be there in two years or one year. I mean, you can see how this works. So we literally chop those goals up into very small pieces. We put them on the board and then we make them commit to them and they're almost forced to be successful. And we have them choose very wisely because we want them to own whatever goal that is. And then they launch. Since then, this gal has gone on three different vacations. She's bought her first house. She's upgraded her car. And I don't really have to manage her very hard because she knows that's what's in it for her is what's in it for her. When you see the problems that we have going on in America, and there's lots of different kinds, uh, and I don't want to make this political or anything, but when you see what's going on out there, what percentage of these problems could be changed for the individual by changing their attitude and orientation towards work? I think belief is everything. And I think belief in yourself, there's no more powerful medicine or program or whatever than believing in yourself. And I think what happens is, you know, a lot of times these kids come out of high school and it's almost like somebody hands them an ax and says, there's the wood, start chopping. And they have no idea where they're going. They're just told chop, 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 and someday you'll be somewhere. I don't like that at all. I would rather show somebody, I would rather have them begin with the end in mind, which is what they want their life to look like, and then work from that point backward to now. I don't want to walk down a path not knowing where I'm going. I want to walk down that path knowing what the beginning date is, how long the path is, how long it's going to take me to get there, and exactly when I'm going to be there, and then I'm going to set a new path. So, I absolutely believe, you know, one of the things that we do is we create what's called the Millionaire Club in our office. And this is such a simple piece of financial advice. I, I don't understand why it's not taught more in schools. If you're 21 years old and someone says to you, okay, you're going to get a job and you're going to make 40000 a year. The first thing I want you to say is, thank you for paying me $37,000 a year. <laughs> because I want that $3,000 to go into a 401k at 60 bucks a week. If they do that from the time they're 21 to the time they're 31, they can stop saving money. And when they retire, they'll have over a million dollars in their 401k account. So we can create a millionaire on day one in 15 minutes as, as fast as they can fill out the paperwork. Okay. So when you think about those simple things that they just aren't taught to these kids, it just makes me crazy because I wish someone would have told me that. I mean, I got in a little later in the game, but I still did it. But it's just nuts how this simple information isn't given to some of these kids coming out of high school. You write that we should plan our careers to support the life we envision instead of the other way around. I agree with you completely, but that wasn't a concept that occurred to me until I was probably about 44. <laughs> how do yeah. you teach that to a 22-year-old kid? I look at it this way. 
you know, if you were to see the things that I've accomplished, okay, whether it's the house I live in, or, you know, when I'm racing my car at the track, or when I'm at the golf course, whatever it might be, no one has ever come up to me and said, wow, you look like a successful guy. Where'd you go to school? Okay? <laughs> yeah. They always say to me, what did you do? How did you get there? How did you grind out a good living? How did you make that happen? And that's why sometimes, you know, if you put ditch digging on a list of 100 things that I wanted to do when I was a high schooler, it would be number 99, okay? But I realized that I could get the things that I wanted. I could build the picture that I had for myself with and through that organization, so I stuck to it. So this is, again, sometimes a little controversial, but sometimes I think it's not as important what you do for a living as what you do with what you do for a living. Because for me, early on, it allowed me to create a certain amount of cash flow for myself that as I moved along, I could invest in some other things, get involved in some other businesses and so forth. And that's what kind of created the overall picture. Steve, what did you want to do when you were 22? What did the career path look like for you at that age? Well, let me think. When I was 22, I just got married and went to work for our family corporation in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And that was right uh, in the Vietnam War. The Army was after me. I was going to be drafted. (laughs) At the last minute, I got into the Air Force. That changed my whole life. Four years later, (laughs) we had sold our family corporation, and I didn't have any idea of what I was going to do. And I was uh, 26 years old. So I started from scratch, and life went on. Yeah. Can you talk about the race cars, the golf courses and all that, but that's not your main motivation or your main goal. You talk about the concept that you mentioned earlier of comfort, peace, and freedom. How do you set that up as the goal and stay on track towards that end? I think, again, it's different for everybody. You know, the level of comfort, peace, and freedom. You know, my daughter was sick about 13 years ago, and I remember writing a a letter to her about what I thought was important in life. And she's fine now, but she battled some stuff for a while. And I wanted to start by writing her this letter about what I thought was important. To me, I had learned some pretty valuable lessons early on about what true happiness is. I know a lot of very successful people that are, you know, they might be millionaires or better and they're miserable. Okay. (laughs) It, It all depends on what you want to do and how you see your life turning out. So, I had one gentleman that influenced me a long time ago. He's in the book and I call him the grass cutter from Minnesota. And this guy, he just laid out his life such that he would work really hard at landscaping between March and December. And then he would take three full months off and travel to every exotic island you've ever heard of and just hang out and just discover the world and live a different life for three months. And they would come home and start all over again. Well, he had a nice ranch house and a nice pickup truck. And he didn't have, you know, mega yachts and supercars or anything like that. But he was happy. He was comfortable. He was peaceful. I mean, imagine knowing that you're going to, as you know, July, August, September, October, November start to show itself. And you know that you're going to have 90 days to just sit around and get tan and and discover these islands and hang out at these club meds or whatever. That was his piece. So I think if everybody draws their own version of that, they can obtain it and then get the happiness that really everyone should be after. You tell us it's both funny and enlightening story about getting a life clock from a coworker. Will you share that anecdote with us, please? 
You know, that's the craziest thing because, you know, it's the law of unintended consequences, right? So I thought, wow, they got me this life clock. This is really cool. You plug it in, you plug in your age, and it starts to tick backwards from how much more life you have on this planet at an average age of, you know, 80 years old or whatever it that, was. That sounds terrifying. At first, I thought, wow, this is going to make me really efficient, right? So I'm out there doing my things and I'm having these conversations and I'm thinking, wow, I wasted too much time on that call and I should do this more and I should do this less. And then I would leave, I would go home. And as I would close the door, that little electronic, you know, Grim Reaper was sitting on my desk (laughs) and I knew that it was just going to spend time. And then I went on a weekend and I came back and like 72 hours had passed off my clock. And then I remember going on vacation. I came back and, you know, hundreds of hours had passed off my clock. I started to get kind of crazy with this thing. So I remember not even wanting to go to work one day because I didn't want to know how much of my life had just disappeared. I literally went under the desk. I mean, after I got super efficient at everything I was doing and everybody around me, they wanted to throw me out a window because I was pushing this up on them. I went in and just took that clock and I just busted it up and threw it in the dumpster. (laughs) But it did teach you a valuable lesson about not wasting time because we don't have a lot of it, you know? Was there any behavior that you've eliminated because of the life clock's warnings? Yeah. I don't hang out with negative people anymore. I have a certain amount of free time. I love my free time and I choose to hang out with people that I think are going to make me better off for it. So if I have someone in my life that was real dramatic and I just can't fix that and you know, it's always something negative, it's always something that is you know, rumor milled or, or something that I wish I could do this or I wish I could do that. I just don't hang around those people anymore because my free time is just way too valuable for me now. Amen to that. Steve, you had a question for Ken about his dog. It was at the end of your book and you were talking about Max and Sandy. That really got to me. I've had dogs all my life since I can remember as a family man, even with my daughter, Paul's wife. We've always had pets. We've had horses. We've had cats. We've had dogs. And I've been a dog lover for years and years, all my life. And thank you for putting that in your book. You want to share that with us briefly, Ken? You know, it's a great thing because Nicole, my daughter, grew up with those dogs. Those were the first two dogs that she had. They were like her brother and sister. It's one of those things about the passing of time. They're your best friends. They're always there for you. They say you could lock your best buddy and your dog in a trunk for a week and come back and who's going to be happy to see you, right? The dog. (laughs) So it's just amazing to me how connected you can become to an animal. And there's something so unbelievably freeing taking a dog for a walk in a park because the dog appreciates it. You appreciate it. Your heart rate goes in half. You smell that fresh air. You end up um, running into other dog owners and dog lovers, and you have a kinship with those people. And it just gives you a whole lot of peace. And I can tell you that, you know, there's a reason everyone in New York walks in Central Park. There's a reason that people walk the beach. There's a reason that people take their dogs for walks because there's just this inherent peace about it. They are your best friends. And we've since gotten two more golden retrievers, uh, Bella and Blue. These two are smaller. They only grow to 40 pounds. And that's good because now that I'm a little older, it's hard to pick up a 90 pound dog. But I got to tell you, I don't know what life would be like without those two girls or two girls and guys, I should say. 
Well, it was a great story, and I enjoyed reading about it. Thank you. If I could say one thing that I think everyone needs to know is that I talk about these characteristics in the book, you know, resistance, persistence, resilience, all these different things that you really think are only for entrepreneurs. Well, let me tell you something about entrepreneurs. The only thing that an entrepreneur has over you or me or or the average person is just the vision of where they're going. And once you have a vision of where you're going, you gain all those characteristics. I believe that every one of us has all those nine characteristics within ourselves. We just need a reason to pull them out. They're like stuck in our closet in the back behind the old socks and the shoes we don't wear anymore. (laughs) You just need a reason to get those things out. And once you have that reason, once you have that clear vision, I want you to know that you are in a hell of a lot more control of your life than you think you are. That's awesome. Before we jump off, I just want to ask you one question. How do you define the American dream and does it still exist? There's no doubt that the American dream still exists. It just is different for everybody. And that's why I say we're not all going to go after mega yachts and supercars and mansions and all that other kind of stuff. You need to figure out. And it's like a puzzle. You know, when you make a puzzle at your kitchen table, you work on it for an hour, you get the square edges all done, and then you leave it. And then you come back and you find a few more pieces and then you leave it. And a week later, you've got this thing built. That's exactly what you need to do to draw the rest of your life. Because when you can create that puzzle and you can create that picture, what you want your life to look like, take your time and do it. It is the American dream and it's there for anybody to get. I love it. And I enjoyed the book. It's called Blue Collar Cash. Love your work, secure your future and find happiness for life by my guest today, Ken Rusk. Ken, where can our listeners find out more about you? Well, you can follow me at Ken Rusk Official on Facebook and uh, Instagram. You can also get the book at KenRusk.com or it's available wherever books are sold, Amazon, Indie Books, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble, BlueCollarCash.com. You can find it any one of those places. And we will have links to those in the show notes. Ken, thanks for joining us today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a lot for having me and, uh, and good luck with that kitchen, by the way. <laughs> okay, Ken, uh, nice to talk with you. You as well. What'd you think of Ken? Oh, I enjoyed him. I thought he was uh, very interesting. Going back early to your and Sue's business that you started decades ago, what did you learn about people actually doing what they said they would do when you hired them or contracted them to do work? Uh, That's an interesting question because there's always two kinds of people out there. There's the, the kind that will promise you the moon and deliver nothing. And there's the kind that will promise you the moon and give you more than the moon. It uh, always reminds me of Lou Holtz. Notre Dame football coach. When somebody asked him, how do you motivate your players? And he says, I don't. I don't motivate my players. I find motivated players. And I never forget that quote. And I think as an employer, we try and find motivated people because it's very difficult to motivate people. Mm. We've had certain individuals where we cannot find what motivates them, be it money, be it time off, be it whatever. There's certain people that cannot be motivated. And if you can't motivate your employees, you have nothing. Okay, now we're going to play a comedy clip that you and I just listened to. This clip that you're about to hear is from March of 2019 at Caroline's Comedy Club in New York City. 
And the reason I'm playing it is because it is about my father-in-law. It is about the insecurity I feel due to the fact that he is a very handy person and I am not. So we're going to go ahead and play that now. I got a lot of, uh, got a lot of book learning and stuff, but I don't know how to do anything. I, don't, I, I think about inadequacy all the time. I'm not talking about like in the bedroom. I mean like at the hardware store, you know? That's my wife. Like this one. Wonder which part she was laughing at. Was just... Here's two indications you're not the guy to fix his own leaky faucet. First indication is every time you turn that wrench, you have to mumble to yourself, righty tighty, lefty loosey. Don't try to fix your own stuff. The second indication is if to get to that faucet, you have to remove from your countertop a very large bottle of Kiehl's men's facial fuel moisturizer. Stay away from the power tools, all right? Because there's only two kinds of dudes in this world. Guys who know how to fix stuff and guys who exfoliate. And I'm afraid I fall into the latter category. You know, not a lot of dudes own both a 200-piece Craftsman socket wrench set and a Clarisonic spinning facial brush. All right, not everybody. Which is really too bad, because with the socket wrench set, you can fix anything in your house. And with the... Clarisonic spinning facial brush, you can gently remove dirt, sweat, and oil left behind by ordinary soap and water, you know? And I'm... What I love about that joke is that the women laugh, the gay dudes laugh, and the straight dudes are just sitting there looking at me with, what the fuck, written all over their dumb, dehydrated faces, you know? They're like, what are you talking about? Talking about a daily skincare regimen, man. Put down the Irish Spring. That's napalm, goddammit. Gonna scorch your face right down to your skull bones. So if I'm the if I'm the kind of guy who can't fix his faucet, why do I even try? Well, I'll tell you why. Because when I see that faucet dripping, what I don't hear is call a plumber. What I do hear is try to fix me, little bitch. <laughs> And I'm like, I'll show you his little bitch. I'm about to go to Google and Google how to fix a leaky faucet. And then I'm going to get all DIY up on your ass. That's what's going to fix you if it takes me three trips to Home Depot, two trips to Ace Hardware, and one trip to the emergency room. And after I spent 11 hours trying to fix a faucet, I finally give in and call a plumber. And when she arrives, yes, she... The best looking plumber in North America. She looks at the mess I've made and says, what made you think you could fix this? And I say, well, I do have a master's of business administration. So, so she charged me double and left after five minutes. So but I had to fix that leaky faucet, y'all. I had to because my father-in-law was coming to town and if he saw that faucet dripping, he would have yet further evidence that his daughter married an overeducated, undercompetent, tender-palmed, liberal arts half-man. And that's me. That's who I am. Thank you very much. In the back. 
See, I can't have him thinking that because he's a man's man, y'all, right? He rides horses, he packs shotgun shells, he eats beef jerky on the toilet. I am not kidding you. I sing show tunes and wear Lululemon, all right? He's a tough guy. He's, he's got a truck that he backs into parking spaces because when the shit goes down, he's going to be ready, okay? This is, this is the guy. He owns four Yeti coolers. Four. That's like $3,000 worth of coolers, all right? He fills out a loan application. He's got to list his assets. Stocks, bonds, coolers. That's a lot of coolers. We went out west last summer, and one morning he and I were up putting the luggage on the roof of the SUV, and he throws the twine over to me and says, tie a knot. Then he comes over and he inspects my work. He's like, what the hell is this? Why do you tie a hitch knot? I'm like, I don't know what a hitch knot is, dude. I was an altar boy, not a boy scout. I mean, we'll get to altar boy in a minute. Uh, I was like, I only know how to tie two knots, the shoelace knot and the half shoelace knot that you tie twice if you're never gonna have to untie it. That's my knot portfolio right there. And I can tie a bow tie. Pretty fucking nice, actually. So. Steve, do you think Ken should worry that his daughter might marry a person who doesn't know how to fix a leaky faucet? Do I feel that my daughter should be worried about <laughs> Ken? Should be. We're going to put it in the third person. How does <laughs> Should Ken be worried about it? No. Okay. No, not really. Is this a generational thing that just younger people today don't have the emphasis on the practical skills? Or do you think that was just... It was just me overthinking how I was going to make money. I was going to go learn how to do finance or something. Oh, I think it probably is a generational thing today. Uh, if you go back 100 years, I think a lot of people knew how to fix a lot of things. You had to, right? It was a sure, necessity. Sure. If you go back 50 years, it changed. You go back 20 years, it changed. You go back uh, 10 years in today's society, we have gotten so technical advanced, like Ken or you were saying with the cell phones and everything else, kids today are so technically advanced that, you know, they basically don't have the skills like Ken was talking about. Where did you learn? Who taught you how to fix stuff? By the way, I know how to fix the Wi-Fi. I mean, if it's just a reboot issue, I know how to do that. You know how to do a lot of things with a computer, with the cell phones that I do not know how to do. Mm. But vice versa, when I got out of the service in 1970, in 1971, we bought a small ranch up in the mountains of Colorado. If you needed a plumber or electrician, it took maybe a day or two to get them up there. In the meantime, I had to learn how to do it myself. Did you buy the Time Life books off of the TV? Oh, you bet. Did you yeah. have all those, really? Yes, yes. Had about maybe 12 or 15 different books on carpentry, electrical, plumbing, everything else. And you taught yourself that stuff out of those books? Yes. Yes. Huh. They had the whole edition. And uh, if a plumber or electrician did show up a couple of days, it was too advanced. You studied everything that he did and learned what he did to fix something. And, and so you learned. That's how I learned how to do a lot of that stuff. Oh, that's interesting. 
I rented until I was 38 years old. (laughs) (laughs) So you missed out on a lot of that. So I didn't, I owned nothing until I was almost 40. In fact, no, wait, I didn't buy a house until, yeah, I was 39 when Stacy and I bought our first house in LA because she was pregnant when we moved in. Well, I was lucky enough to find an old rancher up in the mountains that needed to sell a 25 acre horse ranch. I gave him a hundred dollars down and a 25-year uh, mortgage for $700 a month. That was the first place that Sue and I bought for 100 bucks. All right, let's talk about takeaways from Ken. What are the three most important things you think he addresses in his work? Well, I thought one thing that he addressed in his work was not everybody obviously needs a college degree to make money, especially in today's environment. I thought another aspect of what he talks about is that there is a great deal of money to be made in a lot of different blue-collar endeavors in that carpentry, electrical, plumbing, and whatever that one can get involved in, be it a male or female, and that if you use your hands, hands in mind, that you can make a lot of money and be pleasantly surprised in doing so. Yeah. Does the irony of hearing the our yard services leaf blower outside while we're talking is that strike you? <laughs> I've had these earphones on now for uh, 45 or 50 minutes or so, so I haven't heard the gets leaf. It's warm. I haven't it? heard the leaf oh, the blower. The leaf blower's out there, and as I'm hearing it, I'm like, oh, that's why my kids don't know how to rake. <laughs> uh, here's what I like. One, I just think he's a really practical, smart guy, and there's room for a lot of different interpretations of the way the world works. But You know, when it comes back to basics, hard work matters. Hard work gets you way ahead of somebody that's not going to work hard. And that that hard work should be in service of a larger life vision. And that's something I didn't learn until much later in life, too, is you got to ask yourself, well, what role does work play in my life? And sure, that changes over time. You know, at first, you just want to pay off some bills. You want to be able to pay your rent. And then you get a kid and you're like, oh, man, I want to get a little bit of space here in my budget. And then at some point you get to think long-term, but I love the fact that he emphasizes thinking about the life you want to lead and what comfort, peace, and freedom means to you. Comfort, peace, and freedom. What do those things mean to you and how do you achieve them? Because for some people, comfort means luxury. It means a second home. But to me, comfort means I know how I'm going to pay my bills. I'll rent that vacation house when the time comes. What do you think about that? I uh, think along with comfort, it has to be something in life that you enjoy doing Mm -hmm. and not something that you have to do. What's that for you? Uh, Something that you enjoy doing and not that you have to do for money. If you enjoy doing something, you're probably going to do it very well. Mm -hmm. If you have to do it, you're not going to be happy doing it. You're going to probably end up miserable. It's going to make your life miserable. But don't do it just for the money. Do it because you enjoy doing it. And then the money will follow. Well, that's the uh, theory behind this podcast. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I thought it was very interesting. And probably to read the book, you're going to get a lot more out of it. Yeah. Now for the most important question, do you really eat beef jerky on the toilet? Uh, I prefer not to answer that question. I'm going to take the fifth on that. (laughs) All right, Steve Seidels, this has been fun. Thanks for joining us on Crazy Money. Well, I enjoyed it. I I was a little nervous at first, but uh, I really enjoyed uh, the whole venture. 
Thank you for asking me, Paul. You did awesome. Thank you, listeners, for staying with us all the way till the end. If you have a second, make sure you subscribe to the podcast or scroll down past my gorgeous green face, write us a review, hit some stars, or follow us on whatever app you are listening to us to. Thank you to my producer and editor and friend, Mike Carano. Mike, make me sound smart.